tonight, what's scarier than a zombie apocalypse? Well, how about wokeism in a zombie apocalypse novel? It's Monday, November 8th, 2021, and this is the Ezra Levent Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. You know, folks, prior to the pandemic, my reading mix used to be about 70% nonfiction, 30% fiction. But thanks to COVID and all the misery and nonsense inherent to it, those percentages reversed. I estimate that these days, 70% of my reading material is fiction. Hey, the current reality is just way too harsh. So I crave some escapism during my free time. Besides, is George Orwell's 1984 really a work of fiction anymore in 2021? In any event, nothing screams escapism more than a good old zombie apocalypse novel. So it was that I recently purchased a copy of The Living Dead. Now, this novel was originally started by the late, great George Romero, a visionary who practically invented the zombie genre with the release of Night of the Living Dead back in 1968, followed by countless sequels and remakes, and of course, endless imitators. Alas, Romero passed away in 2017, and his zombie masterpiece in progress had to be completed by a member of the still living. Unfortunately, the relief writer who stumbled out of the literary bullpen was a sultan of soy, Daniel Krauss. To quote Colonel Kurtz, the horror, the horror. Now, in fairness, this novel makes for a great yarn for the first 400 or so pages. Maybe that was the work of Romero for the most part, but then thanks to Krauss, I assume, The Living Dead takes a horrific departure from horror, sinking itself into a quicksand of wokeness. Now, that's really scary, kids. Indeed, the novel really begins to unravel by page 476, when this thriller about the worldwide fight for survival, i.e. humans versus zombified humans and even zombified animals, suddenly devolves into an uber-preachy diatribe that owes less to the horror genre and more to critical race theory. And no, folks, I swear I'm not kidding. Indeed, once the book enters the home stretch, it is set right here in Toronto. It's now some five years after the original zombie outbreak in October of 2023. And apparently the world's human population is pretty much 99% snuffed out. Yet, check out this piece of pithy prose that reeks worse than rotting flesh. Quote, even before 1023, Canada had tempted Americans aching for a land where guns weren't handed out like candy, end quote. <laughs> 
Folks, if humanity is facing its extinction event thanks to zombie people, zombie dogs, zombie dolphins, zombie rats, etc., etc., wouldn't the remaining bona fide living humans want access to copious quantities of guns and ammo in order to, oh, you know, stay alive? Wouldn't even the biggest anti gun zealot by this point fall to their knees? thanking God for the Second Amendment? But no, because it seems that the way out of this horrific existence for the remaining living members of mankind is by embracing diversity? <laughs> Check it out. Quote, there were the elderly, the middle-aged, infants, women, men, non-binary people, gender-fluid people, intersex, trans, gay, straight, bisexual, pansexual, polyamorous, neurotypical, neurodiverse, Muslims, Christians, Hindus, Buddhists, Jews, Sikhs, Deists, Wiccans, Pagans, plus lots of agnostics, even more atheists, and a single drag queen who like to be called Lady Decline. People who were physically, intellectually, psychiatrically, and or neurologically disabled or impaired. Was all this chance or necessity? Nishmura once told The Face he wondered if this was why they'd all been driven to Toronto, sometimes called the most multicultural city, end quote. <clears throat> what the hell? Krauss suggests that in order to keep the undead hordes at bay, one need simply embrace that Beatles song, you know, all you need is love. Personally, I disagree. I think all one really needs is in that situation is a Glock, a Humvee, and maybe even a little toxic masculinity to get the job done. Sorry, folks, but I just can't believe that the alpha male taking charge during a zombie apocalypse is someone who more or less resembles Jonathan Jessica Yaniv Simpson. But then again, what do I know? Krauss points out that when it comes to a leftist enclave, wokeism is so contagious that even the zombies end up getting infected, turning into peaceniks, such as a character known as the Chief, a member of the undead who, by this point, is more into virtue signaling and less into eating the flesh of the remaining members of Homo sapiens. Quote, the chief loved bright plastic buttons and fancy enamel pins. Like deathless corsages, they covered almost every inch of her coat. Most of them had a certain slant. This was Queen Street, Toronto. Trans people matter, sparkly gold. Feminist AF, matte pink. Stay green over a recycling symbol. Love is equal, two smiley clouds linked by a rainbow. SeaWorld still sucks, blue and fishbowl shaped, end quote. Yeah, you know, folks, I experienced my edition of the Summer of Love on Toronto's Queen Street last September when I happened upon a homeless encampment at Trinity Bellwoods Park that would not be out of place as the final setting for the Living Dead novel. Remember this delightful scene? And whatever you do, kids, don't forget to wear your 3D glasses. 
what law you quoting? <laughs> You know, I still have the bite marks, folks, but yeah, that is the reality of a homeless love fest on Toronto's Queen Street. Hardly a kumbaya moment, wouldn't you agree? By the way, did Krauss outsmart himself with the trans lives matter slogan? Look, I'm not saying trans lives don't matter, but isn't that whole lives matter jingle thingy exclusively reserved for the BLM folks? Hey, just ask Len McCauley, who posted a sign at his Toronto home hardware store last year stating, quote, all lives matter, be safe, be kind, end quote. Well, you would have thought he had put a swastika on display. Such was the outrage from the woke mob. The sign quickly came down and Macaulay profusely apologized. And then of course he resigned from the Roncesvalles Village Business Improvement Area. The virus that is cancel culture had struck yet again. But I wonder if Krauss will also apologize for his act of cultural appropriation. For that matter, I wonder if Krauss, who lives in Chicago, has actually even visited Hogtown. Speaking of BLM, there is a black female character in The Living Dead who seems forever obsessed with getting away from white men. But why? Is there still white privilege during a end of the world time? You know, I hearken back to that line from the first season of The Walking Dead TV series in which it is explained that in a zombie apocalypse, there's really no such thing anymore as black people and white people because all we are to the zombies is dark meat and light meat. By the way, it should be pointed out that Daniel Krauss is a white single male, the self-hating kind, I should think. For example, on his website, he actually notes that if you are reaching out to book him on a speaking panel, if that panel happens to be made up exclusively of white men, he will cancel his appearance. Now, why would this loving, tolerant progressive state something so profoundly racist? You know, I did reach out to Mr. Krauss, by the way, but I never heard back from him. Maybe he was too busy shopping for soy or something, which is too bad because one of the questions I had for him was this. How does The Living Dead end? I'm about 150 pages short of the finish line, but I just can't go on anymore. This story got infected, not by a zombie virus, but by a contagion that's far worse. Politically correct wokeism. Oh, poor George Romero. He must be rolling in his grave right now, wishing zombieism was actually a real thing. So I don't know, he could enact some vengeance against those who would desecrate this genre. Alas, it should be noted that the woke media loves the tripe that is the living dead, states the Washington Post, the definitive account of the zombie apocalypse. 
The New York Times chimes in with panoramic and sweeping, a smorgasbord of the undead, a book that will give even the most ardent zombie lovers their fix. Mm, not this ardent zombie lover, I'll tell you. But of course, the Washington Compost and the New York Slimes would state such claptrap because Daniel Krauss is preaching to the converted when it comes to mainstream media zombies. Now, I know what some of you might be saying right now. Hey, big deal. The Living Dead is merely some goofy work of fiction that means squat in the final analysis. <clears throat> But I respectfully disagree, for this is bigger than just some random dumb zombie book. That's because Daniel Krauss and his prose is indicative of what has happened to society at large in recent years when it comes to wokeness and progressiveness and critical race theory and even Marxism infiltrating all aspects of our lives from education and politics to entertainment. So it is we now live in a society where some lives matter and some lives do not. So it is we exist in a bizarre biosphere in which racism is unacceptable except when it comes to vilifying certain races. And hey, seeking escape in fiction is no longer an option. The ideology of the far left, like a zombie apocalypse itself, has taken root. But the question arises, is this movement unstoppable? Well, no, I think it isn't. Hope abounds in a measure of hope against loony left progressiveness came last week thanks to various U.S. elections stateside. First and foremost, Republican candidate Glenn Youngkin stunned the Democrat incumbent Governor Terry McAuliffe in Virginia. Youngkin campaigned on the detriments of critical race theory. Meanwhile, former Governor McAuliffe stated that parents should have no say when it comes to their child's education. Yes, he actually said that. Well, guess what? Mama Bear woke up and she wasn't pleased that the three R's were being jettisoned in Virginia in favor of an approved form of racism and the gross ideology that promotes the radical transgender movement. There were Republican victories and near victories all across America last Tuesday, even in uber woke Minneapolis, where the defund the police agenda seemed like a slam dunk proposition after the death of George Floyd. But voters rejected a ballot question in which a new public safety department, whatever the hell that means, would replace the Minneapolis police force. Yeah, so maybe def defunding the police looks good on paper, but the gut check reality is that when an armed thug is trying to break into your home in the wee hours of the morning, who are you going to call? The Ghostbusters? You know, it was so pleasing to witness the events of last Tuesday, rattling Democrats and, of course, their allies in the mainstream media. And when analyzing what went wrong, well, Democratic strategist James Carvel nailed it, I think, when he stated, quote, what went wrong is stupid wokeness, end quote. 
Indeed, in the months ahead, will the Democrats regroup in time for next year's midterm elections? Will they move away from radical leftism? Or will they double down on American Marxism, to use that superb descriptor from the brilliant author and broadcaster Mark Levin? Oh, and speaking of zombies closer to home, will conservative leader Aaron O'Toole ever, you know, wake up? Here's a guy who has just conducted three press events since the September election. Less than half of the press events Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has held. Now, you'd think the man who wants to be PM would be doing everything possible to get his message out. Apparently not. But why? Maybe it's because his unofficial slogan is, don't be too conservative. Or is his catchphrase, me too, me too, when it comes to liberal policies ranging from carbon taxes to gun bans. Personally, I don't think Aaron O'Toole or his wimpy war room learned anything from last Tuesday or, for that matter, the last Canadian federal election back on September 20th. Indeed, don't forget O'Toole actually claimed victory for the Conservatives on election night, given that the Trudeau Liberals were held to a minority. <laughs> you know, Aaron O'Toole strikes me as the kind of guy who does fist pumps when a game of chess ends in a stalemate. And so it is that when the next election is called, likely within the next two years, Mr. O'Toole will continue to plod along, zombie-like, moving his party yet further and further to the left in order to woo the Laurentian elites while ignoring the, his Western Canada base. Well, we all know how that monster chiller horror theater movie ends. Talk about the living dead indeed. The COVID-19 carnage continues. No, I do not speak about rising positive cases or the death toll. Rather, I speak of the economic carnage, i.e. the thousands of Canadians right across our great dominion who are losing their jobs for failure to, for, for failure to getting the jabs or disclosing their vaccination status. Indeed, in Toronto's Sun, the first front page of today, the headline reads, hundreds of Toronto District School Board staff placed on unpaid leave after failing to disclose VAX status. And one of those employees just happens to be my guest right now. She is Lori Parrott. She was with the HR department of the Toronto District School Board and is now, well, on unpaid leave. Lori, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So, Laurie, um, I think you bring a unique perspective, given that you are from the HR department. We have spoken to several teachers at various school boards. What I want to get to right off the hopper is this. Whatever happened to that concept, you know, reasonable accommodation, why does it have to be this draconian rule that we have to have 100% vaccination or you must disclose your vac status or you're out of a job? 
Well, I can't say or speak to that. Uh, it's the trustees that basically make the decisions. They've had two meetings in the past two weeks. They've got another meeting coming up. And it seems that there are only two trustees on the TDSB uh, trustee uh, list out of 24 um, that actually support uh, choice. And everybody else is voting for a mandated vaccine for all staff. And, you know, I'm glad you raised the issue of choice because for decades now, we've seen from the feminist movement, when it comes to the abortion debate, my body, my choice. Um, has that gone out of fashion, that slogan, or does that merely pertain to terminating a baby's life? Uh, I believe that when it comes to COVID, uh, there, that does not apply. I think uh, for the most part overall, it still applies to abortion, although that seems to be with COVID falling off the wayside as well, that people have become either for or against something. There is, doesn't seem to be as much middle ground these days, in my opinion. Mm. And tell me, um, what does this mean for the Toronto District School Board, Laurie, to lose more than 800 staff? I guess it can go either uh, two, one of two ways. One is that maybe uh, there was so much um, you know, redundancy in terms of how many people were at the board that nobody will notice when those staff are gone. Or maybe these are crucial staff members and the end result is going to directly affect and impede the education that the kids are gonna get. Oh, it's absolutely going to impede. Uh, I deal with one unit of a collective agreement in my HR position. We have different um, HR groups for the different units. And I can tell you in my unit and from the information I have from my colleagues in the other units, we are very short staffed at this point. And that's because people have gone on leaves. They've resigned as a result of the VAX mandate or for whatever their other reasons are. And now by, at this time, uh, there are only 800 that have been put on a leave. Um, and I'd like to correct that I'm not currently on a leave, but I will be placed on one effective November 21st because I am refusing to get the vaccination. So what the people who are on leave at this time are the people who've refused to disclose their vaccination status. And then by November 21st, if they, um, the rest of us who have disclosed our vaccination status but are refusing to be vaccinated are going to be placed on leave at that time. And the estimation by the board is about 4,800 additional employees to those 800 employees. And we are already short staffed in schools. It's going to make classroom sizes probably 40 to 50 students per class. They're not going to have the support in place uh, for the teachers. They're not going to have enough teachers to run things. They're not gonna have enough caretakers, uh, administrative staff, and, and it goes right across the board. From my understanding, even uh, one of our senior team people uh, are not vaccinated and is also facing uh, uh, being placed on leave effective November 21st as well. Wow, Laurie, so it's much worse than what's being reported then with this hard November 21st deadline for so many uh, more TDS employees to make that decision. And what is the, um, 
What is the mood of people in your camp, uh, Lori, that don't want to get the vaccination? I mean, I certainly respect your decision, but by the same token, this kind of coercion that you must get jabbed, even against your will, if you want to uh, maintain your job. And my heart goes out to all these people because, hey, listen, at the end of the day, you got to pay the mortgage. You got to put groceries on the table. I imagine there are so many people in your shoes that are in just a terrible situation because of this mandate. That is absolutely correct. Uh, we do collaborate together and share information and share our feelings. Some people do not have any other recourse to go to um, for whatever their reasons are. Uh, they, they don't have other options. Um, those that had options are exploring those and those include applying to different boards that do not have the vaccination mandate. Uh, some have uh, uh, backup businesses like myself. Um, I have my own business and some people are just financially okay to retire or resign at this point. Uh, but the rest of them are scrambling in terms of what to do and struggling with this decision with their livelihood on the line. They, we are all very much against the vaccination because it's still in trials. There's a lot of uh, health issues that come from it. People are dying. Uh, people are getting long-term um, health problems as a result of getting the vaccination, which are not always clear straight away once you have it. Sometimes it happens a few months later or a few weeks later or a few days later. It's not always immediate. And we don't know what's going to happen 10, 15 years down the road from now. So we are literally scared of getting this vaccine. We do not trust that it is safe just based on the information that's coming out now and who's to say what's going to happen in the future. So our mood is angry, frustrated, scared, uh, some of us cry on a regular basis, wondering what we're going to do. This is a career that we've put our you know, heart and soul into, uh, especially teachers, um, and not just especially teachers, but teachers are devoted to their children and the kids that they teach in the classroom. And it saddens them to have to leave, not because of a performance issue or because they've done wrong, but just because they're not going to submit themselves to medical experimentation. Um, and it's heart-wrenching. And on top of that, this is the way our employer is treating us. And in the meantime, for those of us who do have to work to November 21st, and perhaps maybe onward, if they're making the choice to, to get vaccinated, when they're telling us nobody is held liable, nobody is going to be responsible for any vaccine injuries that you incur and yeah okay if you incur it sure file for wsib that's the only recourse that you have and you know we're saying here's like how can our employer treat us this way and how can we devote ourselves to our job and to doing a good job and show up to work every day in a good mood you know wanting to do a good job when we are so easily discarded in the trustees meeting that they had two weeks ago, they, they said TDSB employees are expendable and replaceable. How well, Lord, do you come back from that? And Laurie, I'm glad you raised the issue of uh, health complications. Is there any accommodation whatsoever? I, I, I know uh, religious exemptions have been shot down uh, across the board, but when it comes to one's health, if you can prove from your doctor that you run the risk of um, an allergic reaction, for example, um, is there any accommodation to those people uh, when it comes to the Toronto District School Board? 
The information that was released last night from the trustees was, I think there's something like over 900 people who have applied for different medical and religious creeds. So far, uh, they have reviewed and approved two of them and they are medical exemptions. And I believe that they, they didn't give a lot of details, but those are based on what you're just saying, people who have pre-existing conditions or can um, prove to have allergic reactions to the ingredients that are in the vaccine. Pretty much everything else they've told us is going to be denied. Uh, so those 900 people who are waiting for a verdict um, are basically going to be denied. They say under pretty much no circumstances are they going to accept anything. And from my understanding, when the people I know who've gone to a doctor to request a medical exemption, everybody's saying no. All the doctors are saying no. And I know that it's been put out in the news that the doctors are being threatened with losing their license if they do approve medical exemptions, uh, regardless of what the reasons are, they're not even exploring that they could be valid reasons. They're just being told that they will lose their license if they provide any exemption for anybody requiring it for work. Wow. And Laurie, tell me, um, I don't know if you were unionized or not. Uh, certainly the teachers uh, are unionized. Has the union gone to bat uh, for the rank and file at the Toronto District School Board? No, they haven't. I'm not unionized because of my position um, and senior team and anybody uh, in central in human resources uh, also is not unionized. So teachers are unionized, uh, support staff are unionized, um, principals and VPs are not unionized and caretaking is unionized. And all of the unions are coming together and saying that, nope, this is valid, you have to do it. Uh, my understanding is that possibly, and it's not 100% certain, um, there's a few unions who have actually put in, uh, while they're saying this to their members, that this is valid and they can do this, uh, they have filed um, grievances against the board for putting this mandate into place. And whether that's true or not, or whether anything comes of that or not is another issue as well. Mm. But basically and they're sticking together. And Laurie, tell me, uh, because you weren't a unionized employee, that puts you in, uh, at an advantage in terms of filing a wrongful dismissal uh, lawsuit. Is that a consideration you have moving forward? Uh, yes, I have already consulted with a, uh, an employment lawyer um, and I've band together with some uh, other people in the TDSB who are trying to get Rocco Gulati, um, as well as we've been speaking with and going on um, Zoom meetings with Roman Babar, who are trying to do stuff for us. Uh, it's unclear at this time if they can help us because we're such a large organization, uh, which is a little bit outside of their scope. So, uh, but individually, we can go to employment lawyers and seek some help. But it's not true that because I'm not unionized that I have a, an advantage. I don't. I'm in the same boat as everybody else, whether we're unionized or not. The employment law is the employment law as it is. Oh, I, I just meant in terms of when uh, you are a unionized employee, uh, there are various complications about filing uh, wrongful dismissal uh, lawsuits. I, I understand that from labor lawyers, but you know, you're, you're right. You're uh, losing a job is losing a job, and and it seems unjust to me and and unjust to a lot of people. <laughs> Tell me, Laurie, um, November 21st will be here before we know it. That's that hard date uh, yeah. in which it won't be just 800 and change. Uh, employees uh, without a, a position right now at the TDSB. It'll be several hundred more. Do you think 
that since in your estimation, this is going to adversely affect the education of children, so, much, so many staff members uh, laid off or fired, will the TDSB um, you know, reverse itself if it sees that it simply cannot go on with that many people out of the system? Well, I can't say for certain, but I do know at the last trustees meeting, not yesterday, but the week before, they were saying that they've already started hiring since March of 2020 to uh, predictably fill in spaces for people who will be placed on leave. Um, and that includes all sorts of different staff. And I can say being in HR that in the unit that I um, uh, deal with or handle or, or manage uh, or assist, um, we have been doing hirings. Are they mass hirings? No. And even with those hirings, we are still short staffed. I, you know, I'm not in the teaching. I don't deal with the, the teachers, HR. I don't deal with caretaking uh, or uh, the PSWs and so forth there. Um, but my understanding is everybody is short staff across the board, regardless of this hiring. But TDSB trustees at that meeting basically said, oh, we've been hiring. We can replace everybody. It's not a problem. But from the numbers I'm looking at, it's going to be a problem. Safety in the school for the children and the workload for the teachers and staff that are, are remaining is going to be insane. And I don't think it's going to be manageable. Mental health is going to be an issue and safety for the students and the staff is going to be an issue as well. You know, and, and Laurie, since you are in a HR position, I, I'm just wondering, what is the lay of the land like uh, at the Toronto District School Board or even other school boards for that matter? I think one of the very unfortunate things of this pandemic, now that there are vaccines available, is the demonization of those who won't reveal their vac status or uh, simply state, I'm not getting the jabs. It's turning employee against employee, sometimes even family member against family member. Do you see that kind of discord at uh, Toronto schools? Absolutely. Uh, there's so many people who are entirely for and entirely against the vaccinations. And it is creating a divide with my own family, with other people's families and within the school board and with the colleagues. Um, there's just no understanding. And I believe that the media and everything else that people are reading and watching is just adding to it. Uh, it's a pandemic of the unvaccinated. The unvaccinated are the problem. Even TDSB policies at this point in time are stating that if you are fully vaccinated, Number one, you don't have to submit yourself to testing, regardless of the fact that the viral loads in the vaccinated and the unvaccinated are equal and you can equally spread and transmit the virus themselves. They are not requiring vaccinated people to submit to test the rapid antigen testing. Only the unvax need to do that. And if there is an outbreak of a COVID within a school, which does happen, especially with the spec ed programs uh, where the students are developmentally disabled, they need a lot of help, there's always people around them. Uh, there's been large outbreaks in those sorts of schools. Uh, only the unvaccinated need to quarantine in a situation like that. The vaccinated are not supposed to quarantine or not required to quarantine. They can continue working as possible. In my opinion, and the opinion of the people that I'm speaking with that are my colleagues who feel the same as I do, that's putting everybody in danger because they can still carry and they can still transmit. And you are allowing people to enter a building 
and to continue working with exposure to COVID and you're not testing and you're not checking to make sure that those people are clear. It's only the unvaccinated. So that's a discriminatory policy to begin with. And it doesn't solve the problem and it's just going to perpetuate the problem. Because at the end of the day, come November 21st, the only people that are going to be in those schools are vaccinated staff. Yeah. And what's going to happen when outbreaks begin at that point and staff need to take leaves at that point because they are sick or they're in a hospital or something happens to them and they have no backup at this point. They have no backup now. They're not going to have backup November 21st when 4,800 more employees go on leave or are placed on leave. No, we'll certainly keep our eye on that. And, and Laurie, just to bring it back to your personal situation, I, I don't know what your financial situation is, but if you are terminated, um, does this mean dire consequences for you or do you have another uh, money earner in the household? What does it mean for you moving forward if there's no more future for you at the TDSB? For myself, I am a single mom of uh, three kids. Two of them are in university. I'm paying university fees by myself. Um, I do have RESPs and you know some backup income, uh, not income, I guess savings investments at this time. I do run my own business, uh, which you know I've been running as a side business while I'm doing my full-time job with TDSB. However, um, I've recently been putting into place my two-year plan into a tomorrow plan to get it sort of catapulted and jump-started into that area. I, it will take me a little bit to get there. I think that I would be able to survive myself. Um, it's just going to be a little bridging of some using some of my savings in the meantime so I get to that point. That's my situation. Wow, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. You know, Laurie, uh, I, we got to wrap it here, but it's funny, isn't it? Uh, well, perversely amusing might be the better word. Decades ago in South Africa, we had apartheid, uh, a odious race-based system that made South Africa, rightly so, uh, the pariah of the world. And now here we are in 2021 in Ontario, Canada, and we have basically medical apartheid. Um, what I'm still trying to connect here is that even though hundreds and hundreds of TDSB staff are going to be let go, um, the vast majority of the staff, I assume, are double vax. So what is the threat in having unvaxxed co-workers? Because isn't that the point of the vaccine, that you're protected? <laughs> so last word goes to you, my friend. Thank you. Uh, well, that's what we're sitting here thinking. It's like, according to TDSB's trustee meeting last night, they're claiming 95% of staff are double vaccinated, 95%. And yes, that's spread across many different buildings. But, you know, I mean, even Ford has reversed his mandate for healthcare workers and education workers. He's not forcing it. TDSB is continuing to force it. And at 95%, which originally when all of this happened and vaccines came out, Ford was saying 80% is what we need to get to to open the economy. Well, we're well past that. So what are we doing? We don't have the answers. Nobody, well, the people who are affected don't have the answers. Only the people in power have the answers. And for us, it's looking like it's a power grab and it's a, it's a, it's, it's just a power play. There's no other explanation for it. Well, Laurie, Laurie, good luck in the days and months ahead. I wish you the very best. Thank you for reaching out and please stay in touch if anything regarding your situation changes. In the meantime, good luck to you, my friend. Thank you so much.
Well, folks, you had plenty to say about Ezra's monologue on Microsoft wokeism and also his interview with Sheila Gunn-Reed about our billboard problems in Alberta. Wild Bill writes, when they get asked tough questions, they fold like cheap card tables. Rebel News asks the tough questions. Why don't they like Rebel News? Well, they probably don't like Rebel News, Wild Bill, because they've never watched our content. <laughs> Paul Lavelle writes, thank you for those videos. I no longer listen to CTV or CBC. They are an insult to my intelligence. Well, thank you very much. But sadly, you're still being dinged from your tax dollars to support those odious networks. Social Distance Justice Warrior writes, you know, a long time ago, being crazy meant something. Nowadays, everybody's crazy. Charles Manson. Hey, and I guess we can just put that to the theme music of Let's Go Crazy by Prince. He lives on. And folks, as for our video of the day, Tamara's interview with former Health Canada pharmaceutical advisor on regulatory issues with COVID vaccines, it's a must watch. But in this case, I was particularly struck by this whistleblower who had had previous experience of 20 years, who then showed up at this site in Texas to help run the, the clinical trial. And within two weeks, she was taking pictures and send of the gross uh, flagrant kind of problems that she saw, which included stuff like the patients were um, put in a hallway after getting the vaccination. Tamara Ugolini here with Rebel News, and many of you have probably seen the recently published BMJ, that's the British Medical Journal, their whistleblower article regarding regulatory misconduct at the lab in Texas responsible for conducting one of Pfizer's many clinical trials. In this exclusive interview, I'm going to dissect that article with someone who has experience within the world of pharmaceuticals, regulatory standards, and oversight. And we're also going to discuss the potentially deadly integrity issues and inconsistent manufacturing processes, such as that which had three lots of the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine suspended in Japan due to contaminants, which included stainless steel. Yep, try injecting that. I mean, at least Japan did their due diligence and suspended it, but it makes you wonder if this is happening elsewhere in the world, and what about Canada? Back in March, Health Canada went ahead with nearly two-thirds of all total AstraZeneca imports coming from a lab accused by the FDA to have quality control issues. The U.S. FDA didn't release any of the vaccines made at this lab to the U.S. market, but a spokeswoman for the Department of Health Canada is quoted as saying, all products in Canada met authorized specifications before they were released to the market. Right. So anyway, back to my interview for privacy reasons that we are very familiar with as everyone who so much as questions the widely accepted COVID narrative gets ridiculed, has their livelihoods threatened, and is generally on the receiving end of a witch hunt smear campaign, my guest didn't feel comfortable coming forward with their full identity. And so I have granted anonymity for the purpose of getting this information out to the Canadian public without fear of reprisal. Check it out. I um, 
went to work for um, a subsection of Health Canada in which I reviewed um, new drug as submissions and compared them in order for uh, price review provided scientific and expert opinion to my advisory committee. And we made decisions regarding pricing on drugs based on that and spent a fair amount of time doing that work, which gave me a lot of insight, particularly on how pharmaceutical companies market and price drugs, and as well as the kinds of um, clinical trials that are run and why, which was very enlightening. And um, I left that and did some work in community hospitals again. I am now retired due to uh, a medical um, issue. Mm -hmm. Now, let's get right into this bombshell that was posted in the BMJ, the British Medical Journal, on November 2nd. It highlights regulatory misconduct at the Pfizer lab in Texas. What do you make of this whistleblower's claims? Well, I think it's very credible, number one, that these claims on data integrity issues on um, from this clinical research organization, how Clinical trials are run, they're very expensive and very complicated. So oftentimes the manufacturer will contract out the actual running of the trials on the trial site uh, by contract research organizations who know the patients and know the system that they're working in. And they have to follow certain rules and regulations in accordance with what's required by FDA or Health Canada or the European Union. And um, these people are, are experienced at doing that. Now, having said that, uh, many of these clinical research organizations are known to cut corners in the past and, um, and that there have been data integrity issues reported from these organizations. But in this case, I was particularly struck by this whistleblower who had had previous experience of 20 years, who then showed up at the site in Texas to help run the, the clinical trial. And within two weeks, she was taking pictures and send of the gross uh, flagrant kind of problems that she saw, which included stuff like the patients were um, put in a hallway after getting the vaccination and nobody was monitoring them so that you may miss um, adverse drug reactions, if that's the case, or they didn't follow up on patients' complaints in a very uh, adequate manner. And really importantly, protocol deviations were not being reported. So the patients are not following the checklists that are put forward. And that, of course, tries to keep data integrity. Um, there were issues with vaccine storage and mislabeled um, laboratory specimens, um, et cetera. One of the most concerning things for me that this data um, that was actually reported by the BMJ was that lab Laboratory confirmed symptomatic COVID was the trial's endpoint, and they missed uh, the trial missed 477 patients with suspected systematic uh, symptomatic COVID. If that's the case, it is quite possible that we don't even have a randomized controlled trial because there may have been a few cases in those 477 patients that were missed. And that would mean that the whole data integrity of the entire trial has been, um, is compromised. I wanted to bring up another issue and that was the blinding of the trial. 
um, and the whistleblower in this report does talk about um, the fact that the people's vaccinations that were with that were drawn up were open for anyone to see whether they were in the placebo group or whether they were in the active group. In addition, and this was noted from the very beginning of the trial, in addition, the side effects, you know, the uh, localized side effects in the arm, the fever, the achiness, the, um, you know, nausea, vomiting, and muscle aches and pain were much, much higher in the clinical trial. And so I think it would be obvious to most of the nurses that were in the trial who got the vaccine and who did not. Um, and what's concerning to me is that whether that was addressed by the regulators, that the blinding was not as clear as it could have been. So these things can be addressed afterwards through statistical analysis or through other, um, other issues um, because it's not the first time these kinds of things happen, but these, uh, this was not discussed at all that I can find. Talk to me a little bit about uh, the the incidences of fever. And I think we discussed, like, there was multiple instances of grade four fevers and then no follow-up. Yes. So let's talk about the grades. So grades one, two, and three, and four. Grade one is mild. Two is mild, moderate. Three is moderate. A grade four fever is 41 degrees and above. Um, I don't know if anyone's experienced a fever of like 40, 41 degrees in mm-hmm. an adult. That's pretty severe. They didn't have too many of them, but there's no way, no how that 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 serious of a fever is very concerning. And it shows that the vaccine was highly immunogenic. That's likely due to those lipid nanoparticles that are in there. And that would, of course, break the blinding because you don't have fevers of 41 on a placebo. You just don't. Now, I'm glad you brought up the nanolipid particles because um, as early as March 2021, the BMGA also reported through leaked Pfizer documents that mRNA instability uh, was being documented by regulators with manufacturing and quality concerns. And the mRNA is is essentially wrapped in these nanolipid particle bubbles. So can you elaborate on why this may be of concern and, of course, how it could lead to poor quality product? One of the big things, this has been a big concern for me from the very beginning, is that these are complicated, complicated products. From It takes about 50,000 steps. And one of the big things was um, I read submissions and I read the submission from the European Union, which was the lead regulator for all the bigger um, regulators, including Health Canada and the FDA. It went to them first. And in their report uh, that they published at the end of December, updated in February, there were five specific obligations that Pfizer had to meet on the actual manufacturing processes, of which as of October, only one has been met. They included stuff like the mRNA, the characterization of the mRNA. We had issues that the mRNA was truncated or short. It wasn't the entire strand that was found in the lipid particles. We don't know if that the fidelity of the mRNA that was made is reproducible or the same. In addition, the lipid nanoparticles, at least 25% of them didn't have any mRNA in them at all. And then there were additional issues with regarding of the um, 
production of the lipid nanoparticles that there were two of the fats used that are very highly, they're called zwitteronic, they're very, very ionic and um, toxic in large amounts. We're giving very small amounts though, but these two lipid uh, products had never been used in humans before. And so normally, under normal conditions, we'd like to make sure that we would study those lipids separately before we put them into a vaccine. Uh, part of the issue here about all of these is that we had no standard uh, tolerance limits, is what I would call that, for these kind of products. This is the first one. So for uh, um, another vaccine or for, a, say, a drug product, you would say that each tablet would have to contain between 90 to 110 percent of the labeled amount. Um, we didn't have that kind of standard for these products when they when they were being made. And so it was what was what was tolerated or what was put forward by the um, manufacturer so that there were a lot of issues regarding what is acceptable or what is not. And so I think, um, so the European Union or the this um, report from the EU had specified specific obligations that were to be met and that would be ideal. They have not yet been met. Whether that makes a difference clinically or not was the big question. And I would submit that it's possible that they do in two particular or in a couple of cases, I think. One is that as the National Advisory Committee on Immunization has stated, if you receive the vaccine and have an allergic reaction, you can receive the second dose because the chances of you having an allergic reaction on the second dose is minimal, if not zero. And you would ask yourself why that would be the case, that it's, is it a vaccine ingredient or is something, nothing else? No one really knows. And I would submit, and other people would, that it's quite possible if you had issues with the actual manufacturing of the product, that in some cases you would have much higher levels of an allergic substance, such as the pegylated lipids. And in another batch, you may not have that same quantity, which may explain the difference in allergic reactions. That needs to be tested, of course, but that's a potential possibility of what, of an outcome of the variability on these batch to batches that were, were actually identified. Now, just in closing, do you have a message for these regulators or people developing policy around these, these injections? Let's be careful. Let's repeat everything. Let's take our time and let's demand expertise and excellence in these products. They are being given to everybody and are being mandated. And in that case, we need to ensure that they're safe and effective. So many doctors, nurses, health professionals, researchers, scientists, psychologists, epidemiologists, virologists, all theologists, they have all been sounding alarm bells that we need to slow down and make sure we get this right. Let's heed that warning and take a step back and ask, our, ask ourselves if the proper processes and checks and balances have been put in place to prevent tragic outcomes especially as we see this rolled out in our pride and joy, the future of our country, our children.
If you want to come forward with expertise or information, but you don't want to risk the smear campaign and the witch hunt that may ensue, then please contact me at Tamara at rebelnews.com and I can offer you full anonymity if I'm able to substantiate your claims. Again, that is Tamara at rebelnews.com. Vaccine passports are the biggest infringement of our time. If you want to help us fight back against this tyrannical overreach, then please consider donating if you're able to at fightvaccinepassports.com. Regardless, you can sign up and be kept in the loop and up to date on all of our most recent efforts to bring this injustice down at that website. Again, you can find all the relevant information at fightvaccinepassports.com. Thank you.